That's it. Let's read God's Word. And we do believe here at City Light that um, the Bible is God's Word, and as it is taught faithfully, it is God speaking to us. So we are reading from Matthew 19 um, and starting at uh, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, good morning. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. Thank you for being with us here this morning, whether you're a regular member here or you're visiting for the first time or you've come a few times before, whether you're someone who wouldn't describe yourself as particularly religious or spiritual or whether you're someone who maybe hasn't been to church for a while and is joining us. It's so good to have you with us. And I just want to double off what Cam was saying. Thank you again for your generosity. It's a, it's a massive thing of grace in this church community to be able to do that and two years in a row. Um, But also on top of that, just thank you for being so uh, adapting, I guess is the way to describe it each week, as we kind of navigate the challenges of being in a high school, realize the toilets on this side were closed because they have some interesting, you'd say, teenage hieroglyphics in there. Um, And that means that we're just using these ones on this side as well. And there's the trucks around and everything. Obviously, we knew coming down here would mean adapting a bit. Um, But also realize if you're visiting, you didn't really sign up for that. So thank you for adapting as well as we kind of navigate this space. Um, But this morning, we are looking at Jesus' interaction, as Cam just read out, with a rich young man, rich young ruler, as he's sometimes described. Um, But ultimately, it's going to be a question about the nature of who God is and what it means. And so whether you are here and a follower of Jesus or you're skeptical even of the claims of Jesus, I think there is something in here this morning for you. And if you are someone who is just investigating Christianity, I hope that this morning as you see what Jesus teaches about possessions and finances and money and all of this, that there will be things that you can see clearly connect with how you see the world, but there may also be things that clash with your worldview. And even if you're here and a follower of Jesus, there might be things that instinctively kind of meld with how you see the world, But Jesus may also be confronting some things in your heart. 
And so I pray this morning that as we open God's word, we would hear God speak through his word as we look into this text in Matthew 19. Because one of the strangest things that you can say about money, and maybe one of the most obvious at the same time, is that everybody wants money and nobody wants money. That's one of the strange and obvious truths about money. Everyone wants it and yet nobody wants it. Because the case is that we all, the people really want money, but it's not the currency that people want, is it? You can think of it in this way. The Harbour Bridge is the most trafficked bridge in Sydney, and it's not because anyone wants to get to the Harbour Bridge. In fact, if you want to get to the Harbour Bridge, you won't take a car most likely, or at least take a car and then walk. The reason it's the most trafficked bridge is because wherever you want to go, it just may be the through road to get there. And it's exactly the same with money. We don't want the currency itself, and crypto is a living illustration of that. What we want is what it can get you. And what people want, funnily enough, with money is usually one of the big four. With money, there's always a big four, isn't there? There's a big four banks, there's a big four accountancy firms, and then there's a big four in terms of what we want to get from money. And usually, it's one of these four. We either want power, control, pleasure, or approval. Usually one of those four things is what people really want from money. Do you want power? Status? Did you grow up with a sense that you weren't worth something and you want to prove to the world that you are someone? Money can give you that. You show up somewhere with a really nice car, people are going to ask questions. They're going to be like, who's that? What do they do during the week? Who are they connected to? Money will give you power and status. You want control, money can give you that. You're afraid of the future? If you've got money, you have no worries. You don't have to worry about what's going to happen with the housing market. You won't have to worry about what's going to happen with the pandemic and the crash. If you've got money, you can be secure for the future. If you want control, money can get you that. Do you want approval? Money can get you that. You have money? People will like you. How sincere that is is up to your discernment. But the truth is, you'll be liked more if you have money. Do you want pleasure? Money can buy it. Anything you want. In a modern Western economy like ours, money will get you anything. We want money because we want something else. And so then it makes sense that 15% of Jesus' teaching is on the topic of money. And that might seem strange because the context that he was in, most people were living day to day. That is, they only had enough finances for the next 24 hours. You earned what you needed for the next day on the day. That's the majority of the people that Jesus was talking to. But the reason he speaks about it so much is that it's true of an ancient culture and of a modern culture that nothing, nothing will reveal our deepest desires, the deepest desires of our hearts, like money. The way we relate to money, the way we spend it, will demonstrate, will expose what we truly want and what we truly desire. And so in a great follow-on, I guess, from last week, we're going to see that Jesus will teach that if you're a follower of him, your joy is in God and not in your stuff. So you are meant to use your things, your finances, steward your money in a way that demonstrates that it is not your treasure, but God is. And as we dive into this passage, I'm going to pray that he would be revealing this truth to our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you're a God who loves us and who speaks to us through your word. That your word is living and active. And that as Jesus spoke on these things in an ancient world, they are every bit as applicable today. And we pray that we would see you in a new light this morning, that we would see your son Jesus 
as our life, as our treasure, and that this would lead us to use our things in a way that demonstrates that they are not our God and they are not our life and not the thing we long for, but that you are. Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, this passage starts, as many of them do, with an interaction and a question. Have a look at the question that kicks off this whole teaching, this whole interaction. In Matthew 19, the chapter, and in sentence 16, we see that someone comes up to Jesus with a question. It says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this is the question that sparks everything off. We have someone asking a question, What's the good thing that I must do in order to get eternal life? So we know that this young man believes that there is such a thing as eternal life or life after death. And he believes that there's something good that you must do in order to get it. And that really is fundamentally the basis for probably every major world religion. There is a belief that there's a highest state of being or there is a kind of a heaven that you can get to. And there's something that you must do in order to get there. But it's also the basis of every secular worldview as well. Even if you don't believe in a God or an afterlife or in a spiritual reality you'll still believe that there is a happiest possible state of being and that there is something that you must do to get there. There is a place I want to be in my life. There's a relationship I want. There's a career I want. There's a vision for life that I think would be the best and happiest possible life. And this is what I believe I must do in order to get there. Everyone believes that there is a heaven and that there is something that you must do to get there. So even if this sounds like ancient talk, It is still very much the question that people are asking of their lives now. How do I live the happiest possible life? How do I get to heaven? And what's the good thing that I've got to do to get there? But look at how Jesus replies to him. In Matthew 19, 17 to 20, it says, And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what's good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus prods him a little bit here. He says to him, Why do you talk to me about what's good? There is only one who is good. Now for a Jewish audience, they would have known straight away what Jesus was talking about here. In Deuteronomy, there's a section of scripture called the Shema, And it reads like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord Lord our God is good. And every Jewish listener would have known that. The equivalent for Australians would be if you said to a bunch of even Australian kids, Australians all let us rejoice for, they can just finish it, right? It just rolls off the tongue. And in the same way, they would have known what Jesus was alluding to. He's talking about the fact that God alone is good. But Jesus continues on and prods him with a few questions. He says to him, well, look, you you need to keep the commandments. And like a good businessman trying to whittle down the deal, the the, the man says to him, okay, all right, got to keep the commandments, but, but which ones? And Jesus kind of rattles them off. He says, you shall not murder, commit adultery, not steal, bear false witness, so on and so forth. And the rich young ruler says, great, I've done all of that. And at this point, you realize why he'd asked the question. You know when you're at uni and like a uh, mature age student asks the question about the pre-readings and it's not really a question, in the end it's a statement and it's just to show that they've done the pre-readings? And you're like, oh, okay, so it's not a question, it's a statement. Well, that's the same here. He said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Knowing that he feels like he's got a good report card. And so when Jesus rattles them off, he's like, oh, 
That's embarrassing. I've done all of those. <laughs> oh, guilty. That really backfired. And you can see that this is how he's hoping the interaction will go. That he's speaking to Jesus because he knows Jesus is a famous rabbi. And he kind of wants to put himself out there as not just wealthy, but also religiously upright and good. But he does himself no favors when he says to Jesus, What do I still lack? And Jesus goes for it. Look what he says. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why does Jesus say this? Remember, the conversation started with, What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Is Jesus saying here, well, in the Old Testament, the way you inherited eternal life was by keeping all the commandments. But in the New Testament, it's by giving all your stuff away to the poor. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Now, Jesus is exposing this man's heart. When Jesus read out the commandments, I don't know how well you know Exodus 20, but maybe if you've been around for a while or maybe as a kid, if you went to a church or you grew up in a church context, you might have had to memorize the Ten Commandments. I didn't. I didn't know them. But you might notice that he missed the first one. Look at Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus blindsides him. He's not doing it to be cheeky. He's saying this man has failed the first commandment because his God is not the Lord his God, but his money. Where he believes he will find life, meaning, purpose, and joy really is in his possession. So when Jesus says, if you had to choose between God and your stuff, what would you choose? And the man walks away sorrowful because he cannot believe that losing everything he had would be worth gaining God. Money was his God. The truth is that you will love whatever brings you joy. If something brings you a little joy, you love it a little. If something brings you a lot of joy, you love it a lot. But whatever you think will make you ultimately happy, that thing is your God. Whatever you capital L love, the thing you believe will bring you ultimate fulfillment and joy and peace and meaning in life, that thing is your God and it will order the priorities of everything else in your life. And that's true whether you are religious or secular. That's true of every worldview. And here, Jesus spotted it from the start that this guy, little L, loves God and capital L loves money. That he little T trusts God and capital T trusts money. And so when Jesus said, if you had to choose, he goes away sorrowful because he cannot believe that God would be worth losing everything for. And this leads to a discussion with his disciples who are shocked by this. Look what they ask him after this in Matthew 19. In sentence 23 it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus says it's not likely that the rich will enter the kingdom of God. Those who have spent so much of their time and energy investing in that will find it very hard to trust that following God, following Jesus, would be worth more than everything they've accrued. And this shocks the disciples. Because when this guy came to him, in their culture, someone who was wealthy was someone who was clearly blessed by God. 
And not only that, but he was really religious as well. So they're like, well, if this guy can't get in, who can get in? And did you see what Jesus said? He said, with people, it's impossible. And yet with God, all things are possible. And this was shocking to them. See, the truth is, it is impossible to earn our way to God. In answer to the question, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? There is nothing that we're able to do. This is at the center of the gospel. So the problem is, even if we change our ways, we cannot change the fact that we have all worshipped things that are not God as though they were God, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And there is no way to do away with that. But more than that, the Bible goes deeper and says, actually, even though Jesus has been sent to die in your place for your sin, he has taken on the debt of sin, the truth is that no one here who follows Jesus would willingly have chosen to follow Jesus if God did not intervene. Because the truth is, sin isn't just a matter of behavior change. It requires a full change of heart. It goes too deep for us. You can think of it in this way. How many people here are familiar with Louis Theroux's documentaries? Okay, great. Well, for the five of you, this is going to be a great illustration. But for a bit of background for the rest, in short, Louis Theroux, I think he does mostly BBC documentaries, but he's a kind of looks like a, a bumbling, nerdy, just very disarming type of person, and he throws himself into incredibly awkward, uncomfortable situations and asks difficult questions. Because he's so disarming, people kind of really let him into their lives, and then he whacks them with uncomfortable questions. And so if you've seen some of his stuff, you'll be familiar with his MO. But he, he does, uh, there's a documentary he does on gambling. And, um, and in this documentary, he's speaking to people, it's really all centered on Las Vegas, and he's talking to people who are, um, what do you call them, like high rollers, spend a lot of money at casinos. And when he's in one casino, they're like, oh, you should meet this lady who's, who, who comes to the poker machine section every single day. So he goes down there and meets her, and, um, and he starts a conversation with her about her gambling habit. And he says to her, why, why don't you quit? And she says, I don't want to. I love it too much. And he says to her, can you afford to keep doing this? And she says, I've lost almost $4 million in the last decade. So she was a doctor, wealthy, and he has no idea how long she can afford to keep doing this, but that's the amount that she's lost in that period of time. But in answer to the question, could you stop, she says, I could, but I don't want to. I love it too much. The way the Bible describes sin in the Bible is similar to addiction in some ways that we can't stop because we love it too much, even though it's causing destruction in our lives. God sent Christ to die for our sin, but even that was not enough. He had to send His Spirit into our hearts so that we would see Christ for who He really is, our treasure, our life, our redemption, that we might reach out in faith and trust in Him. And that's why Jesus says, with us it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so this then prompts the reply from Peter. Look what he says. Peter says, See, we have left everything and follow you. What then will we have? Peter is starting to despair. He's saying, well, if it's impossible, how can we be saved? And then Jesus says this to comfort them. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit also on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, 
and many who are last will be first. Jesus says, if you have left everything, he's saying this to Peter, if you have left all this stuff for me, well, guess what? The impossible has happened. God has saved you. That the only way you could possibly think that Jesus was worth losing everything for is that God has renewed your heart and done an impossible work in you that you might come to treasure Christ above anything else. God has done the impossible in you. It's the mark of a true disciple. The mark of the true disciples is that they use their stuff to show that Christ is their treasure and not their stuff. The rich young ruler walked away sad because this stuff wasn't just stuff to him, it was his life. And he couldn't part with it. He couldn't believe, even though he was standing in the presence of God himself, that it would be more worthwhile to follow Jesus than to have this stuff. But he said his disciples have left everything to follow him because the moment they saw Jesus, everything they had became instantly worthless to them. And so what do we do with this? Well, if you are here and you are unsure about where you stand with God, the question for you would be, do you have anything in your life that is so worth, that is so valuable that it would be worth losing everything for? And do you have something, a possession, that actually would even outlast death because that's what Christ claims to be. In fact, his claim is that if you were to add up all the things, all the good things that you have in your life together, they will not bring even nearly the joy of knowing him and knowing him eternally. And so I would encourage you to keep investigating his claims as we meet week to week to move through the Gospel of Matthew. And even as we get to the heart of the Gospel over the Easter long weekend, to see whether or not his claims stack up, that there is a joy so good that it would be worth losing everything for. But if you are a follower of Jesus, what do you do with this passage? Well, here's one approach. What we could say is that, look, Jesus didn't really need this man to give away his stuff. It was an object lesson. He was making a point. He was revealing his heart. And the point of this passage is that we know it's only God who can save. And therefore, this passage really has nothing to do with possessions and money. The main point is that salvation is by grace. Um, and it's okay to have stuff so long as we're willing to give it away and so long as we live with a sense of inner detachment towards our things. Well, a theologian and pastor called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived in Germany and was part of a group that conspired to try and kill Hitler, so that's, that gives him some credibility, even right there, right? How many of us could make that claim? Um, but he, he actually deals with this in, in a book he wrote called The Cost of Discipleship. And he gives this illustration. He says, uh, imagine a father said to a kid, go to bed. And the kid sits down and thinks, well, dad knows I'm tired. And so the heart of what he's really trying to tell me is that he's worried that I'm tired, but I could just as well deal with my tiredness by going out to play. I think that would be quite refreshing. So when dad says go to bed, what he really means is go out and play. And Bonhoeffer says of this very passage, the difference between us and the rich young man is that he was not allowed the space to say, never mind what Jesus says, I can still hold on to my riches, but in a spirit of inner detachment. It must at least be the implication of this passage that we aren't just to live inwardly with a sense of detachment to our things, but to really do what Jesus says, to give away money according to kingdom priorities, to advance the gospel and to alleviate poverty and injustice in the world. Jesus repeats this theme over and over again in his teachings. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
It's true that we may not have to give up everything. But the pattern of discipleship in the New Testament is that if your joy is in God, then you will freely give and steward your things for kingdom priorities that Christ might be glorified. And so I think the first implication is that you need to be giving away and have a settled regular pattern of being generous with your finances in a way that reflects that Christ is your treasure. And so let me offer you this possible counsel, that you need to have a number and that many Christians choose a base number of 10%. That just 10% of what they take in will go out for kingdom purposes. Now you might say, why, why would you choose a number like that? There's a couple of reasons. One is you need a number. You need a number that you either do or don't give away because our trend is that we're going to give away less rather than more. I, I would be very surprised if anyone here just one year was like, oh my gosh, just 50% of my stuff just went away. I just gave it away. That was so weird. The truth is that in guarding our hearts, we will tend to give away less year on year rather than more. And so having a number has some kind of accountability to it. The Old Testament lays out a tenth as tithing. Now, there were other gifts on top of that. It ended up being more than that. But it serves as a good base. But lastly, even secular authors. So William McCaskill, who's a part of Effective Altruism, which is a non-religious organization. In fact, it's one that many who, um, who Spruker would identify actually as atheist, offers up 10% with no particular reason. But the fourth reason is that if we follow Christ, we ought to give away something, and it needs to be in some way sacrificial. See, if you've never really missed out on anything for Jesus' sake, this passage is probably more of a warning than a comfort. The rich young ruler went away sad because he could not believe that giving something up to follow Jesus would be worth it. And it revealed in the end that he didn't actually know Jesus or treasure him as Christ. And if your life doesn't show a sustained pattern of sacrificial giving, in the end you are hoping in spite of the evidence that your treasure really is Christ. There is a warning in this passage. Now it's certainly possible that that's the case, that you could love Jesus truly and yet it hasn't quite made its way into this area of life. That's definitely possibly true. But as we sit under this passage, Jesus is laying out a call and a warning that to follow him means that he is your very treasure and that this should be demonstrated in the way that we give. It should show up in our bank account. And not only that, but what he's offering is not sadness like for the rich young ruler, but in fact that it would be our joy. You know, Hudson Taylor, who started the China Inland Mission around the turn of the 20th century, who gave up everything to take the gospel to China, wrote this. He said, The less I spent on myself and the more I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. That for him, generosity wasn't a matter of begrudging kind of giving and like, ah, this is what hardship to Jesus means. This is how I have to earn my salvation. But actually it was a result, an overflow of the gospel transforming his heart so that he did what really is impossible without God at work in your life, that is to give things away and to actually be happy about it. Christ is calling us to show that he is our treasure by the way we steward our things. And so on this, it should mean that we would use our things, our stuff, our finances, to have maximum kingdom impact before it's our time to go home to Jesus. Probably the most helpful living illustration of this 
would be something that my, my dad was telling me about, our, one of the missionaries who we've been connected with over in Ukraine at the moment. Now their concern at the moment is that their currency may become useless. That if the banks end up being shut down or are unable to operate, that the money they have in their very hands may become worth nothing, or the money that they have in their bank accounts may be worth nothing because they can't access it, or whatever happens. So what they are doing week on week is converting cash, converting money into canned goods, food, generators, material things that are actually going to help them to survive over the next period. Not only that, but they're trying to work out whether they can transfer things into crypto that might actually be usable or an effective currency, even if things get worse. But with the future in mind, they're trying to transfer as much of their current currency into something that's going to be useful down the line because they know what's about to happen. In the same way, Jesus says the world is passing away and you can't take your money with you. Randy Alcorn, an author, says that we cannot take our treasures with us, but we can send it on ahead. That is, wisdom is to say, how much do I really need to actually live on? And therefore, once I've worked that out, how much can I steward to give away to have maximum impact for the kingdom, knowing that there is a day when Jesus will come back? And in light of that, to steward my things for kingdom priorities. And so I would encourage you over this week, as we meet in our community groups, as we study God's word, to think seriously about what God has given you and to think, how can I use this to demonstrate that Christ is my ultimate joy? And not with a begrudging sadness like the rich young ruler, but with the faith that Jesus is right, that his word is true and it's good and for our joy. And with that in mind, there are a couple of areas to consider as you think about stewarding what you have for maximum kingdom impact. As we give things away, we want to think about advancing the gospel, as Jesus calls us to, and to alleviating poverty and injustice in the world. In advancing the gospel, you may give towards the local church. This is your local church if you're a member here. And part of our operations and church study that we ran last week is that we might steward everything we have to advance the gospel in our context. And so if you haven't thought through your giving or a regular pattern of giving, that would be a first port of call to consider. The second one is mission giving, that is global missions. We support missionaries through this church and we give away year on year. It ends up amount slightly more than 10% of our total operations budget goes straight out to missionaries, but also other organizations. Then there might be people that you can give towards. When it comes to alleviating poverty and injustice, we support the Asylum Seeker Center over in Newtown, as well as Diamond Pregnancy that helps vulnerable women uh, in a, who have found themselves pregnant without a partner, without necessarily resources. And that may be something that you actually want to support. The other one might be that there are missionaries and organizations in Ukraine right now you also may have the opportunity to support if God has given you the means at this moment. Now, I want to give you one caveat that if you are at the moment up to your neck in debt, that it's not wise to go into deeper debt to give things away. That that does need to be dealt with, and we would love to help you with that. But it's not wise to double down on debt at this point. It needs to be dealt with first and foremost. But if you are in a position to give, to know that it's your joy to give because Christ is your treasure. And not only that, but in the giving, it is in a way deepening our understanding of the gospel. Let me finish with this. Shane Paxa is a missionary in Ukraine at the moment, and he sent an email out this week. And uh, the reflection I'm going to read to you comes just after his recounting of a story where he was talking to a man at a checkpoint 
who had been there for somewhere in the order of 30 hours. They were in 48-hour shifts at these checkpoints. And as they were speaking, uh, rockets flew just meters over their head, and he could see that the man in front of him was visibly stunned by what had happened. And it was an opportunity, he said, to share the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus. And he finished by saying this. He says, where does your hope lay? Where do you find satisfaction and stability? Do you find your stability in the things you own? I tell you, they can be taken away in an instant. Do you find your stability in the amount of dollars you have in your bank? This too can be taken momentarily. What about health, friends, sport, job, family? Where do you find your satisfaction, your stability? If it is, anything, if it is in anything that this world offers, then it can be just as easily taken away from you and your world will crumble beneath your feet. You will be lost, broken and shattered. If, however, you find your stability, your satisfaction in God, then no matter what happens to your money, your house, your friends or your health, you can still have peace, joy, stability and satisfaction, even in the worst situations. God provides a stable foundation to stand on, no matter what comes across your path. War, rockets, missiles, air raid sirens, drones, bombs, it's all happening around me. And yet my hope is in God and he gives me peace and joy and stability. May Christ be our life and our treasure, and may the way we use our things demonstrate that Christ is our life and our treasure. Let's pray. Father, we are so often distracted by the immediate and pressing concerns around us, and even by the buzz of our own immediate needs and wants and desires. Help us this morning and over this year to step back and consider the gospel. That Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That we might be brought back to you. That you have sent your spirit into our hearts that we might have faith and that we might cry, Abba, Father, and know you as our Heavenly Father. And may this lead us to see our things for what they are. That we might steward them well we might steward them wisely and then we might have a heart to advance the gospel and to align our finances with kingdom purposes to address and alleviate poverty and injustice where we can and to send the hope of the gospel forth that people might know an unshakable hope and joy and peace in you one that cannot be stolen even by death and Father we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name Amen